1: Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to
2: support Francesca and the Rerooted podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hey
3: everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime and welcome to this edition of the Rerooted podcast here on Ram Dass' Be Here Now Network. It is December 30th. It is the last podcast that I will be taping in 2020 and my oh my, what a year it has been for all of us. And as we sort of begin to transition into the new year and a lot of the things that uh, might be yet to emerge, things that perhaps uh, we are hopeful about, um, things that are sort of incubating or generating, I wanted to turn our attention to something that is part of the podcast. We, you know, we talk about trauma, we talk about mindfulness, we talk about the uh, different kinds of neuroscience interviews that I've done, but also the creative arts, because that's a piece that, uh, because we've been paying so much attention to uh, racial justice overtly and the ways in which, uh, you know, we've really witnessed the Black Lives Matter movement and the uprising over the summer of 2020 and into, um, of course, the fall and the winter as everything is continuing to be in process, we're also sort of tapping into, well, what's new, what's fun, what's creative, what's joyful and all the different ways in which uh, creativity and emergence and being your truest self, being your most honest and authentic self is a contribution to the world and a celebration of joy that is your deepest birthright. And one of the ways in which I have been Uh, really experiencing joy, is through the music of uh, a Mr. Warren Wolf, a vibraphonist who I am so thrilled is here with us today. He's a multi-instrumentalist, actually, not just vibraphone, uh, from Baltimore, Maryland. And from the young age of three years old, he's been trained on the vibraphone and the marimba, the drums, the piano as well. Under the guidance of his father, Warren Wolf Sr., Warren has a deep background in all genres of music, beginning get this, with classical music. He studied composers like Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, uh, Paganini, oh my goodness, I haven't heard some of these names in a long time, Um, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Duke Ellington, and the jazz era, and uh, Weather Report, Wynton Marcellus, and a lot more. He studied uh, at Berkeley, uh, the Peabody Preparatory uh, School for eight years, and uh, I could go on and on about the folks that that warren has worked with and the kinds of um albums that he's put out including christmas vibes which just came out in the winter of 2020 the song that you listen to when you hear the introduction to Rerooted is warren's song warren wrote that it's called gang gang and i am thrilled that uh he's here with us tonight to celebrate uh joy and music and uh your creative spirit hi warren
1: Hello, what's happening?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe this is like happening already because we just chatted and here you are. Um, You know, one of the things during this pandemic that has been so difficult for us all is we can't go anywhere and do anything. And one of the things that I loved is that these live stream concerts started popping up on my feeds for things like, uh, you know, all the places where I normally would go and listen to live music in New York because it's so rich. We have a... You know, we have so many beautiful venues, whether it's Smalls or or, or the Blue Note or the Village Vanguard or whomever it is, and we can go. And when I started to see that there were live stream concerts I was thrilled, and uh, many of them that I have been enjoying lately have been uh, from you, even in Baltimore, because I can listen to them from wherever, Uh, but I think the one I caught first this year was with uh, Emmett Cohen at uh, Emmett's Place, and so in any case, uh, I just want to say thank you for brightening at least this girl's uh, winter here in 2020, and uh, keep the spirit alive with your
1: music. No problem. It's it's been an honor to uh, continue to play during this pandemic. Uh, it's very important for me to continue to play to give people some type of normalcy, uh, to can, just to keep the music going. Uh, I know a lot of friends who have used this time in multiple ways to, to just take time off to, to relax. Other friends have said, "I'm just not going to play because I'm nervous." Me, I, I've just kept going. I just said, "Okay." I might not be able to travel, like getting on an airplane or a train somewhere, but I'm I'm just gonna continue to make things happen for my hometown of Baltimore. And um, it's been an awesome, well, I can't say awesome, but it's been a, ver- a really good year. 2020 has been still very productive and busy for me. <laughs>
3: I love that. Um, you almost caught yourself like, oh, no, I can't say it's been a good year. But it, ha- but it, but you can say that. I mean, I don't not not that you need permission from me, but I love hearing that, that it's been productive and, and joyful for you. Tell me tell me what's been great about it for you.
1: Well, when everything first happened um, back in March, um, I remember I was on the road. I was in Oakland, California with a wonderful vocalist named Cecile McLaurin-Salvant. And yes, uh, I've heard her. Yeah. So we we recently uh, last year recorded this new piece that's coming out. It's called the uh, the old grass. It's that's I'll explain that another time. Well, shoot, you'll hear about it. And we were on tour. Uh, we had four four nights out of a week. It, it's a very it's a big ensemble. And I remember the first night we were at University of California in Davis, California. We managed to get that performance. And by this time, you know the the pandemic wasn't really that big yet but it was really like coming Mm -hmm. so we were on stage in oakland california at the paramount theater Mm -hmm. we were down the general manager of the band on stage and said hey guys i'm sorry this show isn't happening tonight we were like wow so from there um we had a show at los in los angeles at walt disney hall canceled stanford university canceled so i went home you know, I just said, okay, it's time to go home. So I went home and I just started practicing. My mindset was more like, you know, this this will this will last like two or three weeks, you know, easy, easy breezy. <laughs> we'll be back on the road soon. But, you know, slowly but surely, I just kept getting emails just like everybody else. canceled, 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 cancel, cancel. So I started to think, I'm like, well, what can I do in the meantime? You know, if all of this, these things are canceled and and I'm really good friends with uh two guys here in Baltimore one guy his name is Henry Wong he um, runs the venue here in Baltimore called Andy Music mm. and um I've been playing there many times I would say in my lifetime I've had to at least perform there at least 80 80 times at least yeah um he's he was the very first person in Baltimore to start um live stream shows from his venue and i was the first artist he said nice. well, you want to do something uh i said sure and you know because actually my whole thing was to i just wanted to again like i said in the beginning i wanted to just go on camera and just play for people mm. and i wanted to do it in a particular venue because my wife said she said you know nobody's coming over our house yeah so i called henry and that's when he said well warren let's just try to do it right let's make a live stream." so from andy music to um a brand new club that just started in Baltimore last year. It's uh the Keystone Corn in Baltimore, which is uh founded by NEA jazz master Todd Barkett. So between the two venues, I've just been bouncing back and forth uh pretty much on a weekly basis um for the past well since March almost. Yeah. Um, also uh during that time I'll say two weeks after the, the uh shutdown happened here in Maryland um, that's when I recorded the new CD, the Christmas vibes, mm. which came out, um, had a slight personnel change because one person was kind of afraid to be around everybody. And also at this time, this was during the time when nobody was talking about wearing masks. It was, it was more like everybody just keep their distance from each other, uh-huh. Uh huh. but he, he just wasn't really comfortable. So, you know, I wound up playing on the Christmas vibes record. Um, all piano parts because of this person couldn't he since he pulled out at the very last. Minute, oh wow! So you're all all keyboard. You're parts. like Prince. Oh, I'm, I'm the utility guy. Uh huh. <laughs> so um, you know, we made the record, um, and then I started to think. You know, I think one person had called and said, "Hey, Warren, can you lay down um some tracks for me? You know, I have a record that I'm working on. I would love to have you on it." And I didn't have any equipment, so again a bunch of musicians not just me we all started uh ordering equipment um recording equipment online uh-huh. i started i called this company called sweetwater and i i, I just probably invested about two thousand dollars in some very not cheap but just good enough recording equipment sure and so that's been keeping me busy right there so between the two venues here in baltimore doing um uh, recordings or tracking for people at home, where I won't have to go anywhere really, um, and also teaching. I'm a, I'm a faculty member at uh, Peabody Conservatory here mm. in Baltimore, and I also teach uh, part time at the uh, San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And wow. uh, those two, and you know, every now and then somebody will call and ask for lessons. Um, I think I've been to New York twice um since the pandemic i had a couple of recording sessions there so you know what turned out what i thought was going to be like a very chill year it, it was actually still steady the only difference was i wasn't really traveling everywhere like how like how i planned on it
3: yeah right I haven't right been
1: on the plane yet but i i've been busy so,
3: right, right. And you're and you know what? You just exude positivity and just you just exude like I don't know appreciation. Like there's just a sense of you and in you that I get and that I receive even in your music too of like gratitude and joy and appreciation. And 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 it's and it's not like fake and it's not like papered on and I'm sure you have bad days just like everyone, but that there's something about the quality of your attitude that I don't think I don't know, tell me if you know, has anyone else ever said that about you? And if so, you know, where might you think that comes from?
1: Yeah. A, a few people have said to me, they said, Warren, you're a very positive and happy person. You're always smiling. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times when I'm on stage, people always say to me, they said, Warren, you have a very nice smile. You should show it more. Yeah. <laughs> I, when I play, I don't smile because I'm just like, you know, I'm trying to concentrate on, on playing. Right. But um, that could come from a number of uh, things like, you know, I'm a father of five. I know. (laughs) Um, But I mean, my older three are with my ex-wife. Then I got divorced and I got remarried. So my younger two are home with me now. And Mm. they're, they're, they're a lot of fun. They're busy and moving a lot, but they're a lot of fun. And my wife, she's awesome. Um, she's very supportive. She's a, uh, retired ballerina and she's very big into health. So that part right there, like the health side, you know, that kind of keeps keeps us going. Well, keep me going, but still keeps us going. Um, you know, just trying to take care of the body, take care of your mind, make sure you're mentally uh correct. Also, um, again, just trying to keep music going, trying to just make people happy because I've just come, I've talked to so many people who are just they're down and they're bored. And I try to talk to them and just say, you know, I try to uplift people. I try to get on social media as much as I can and just post videos. Hey guys, check this out, you know, you know, just mm-hmm. see what I'm working on and see if this brings you some type of positivity, you know, some type of hope. Um, you know, yeah, that's, pretty much it i I try to just be be cool and you know
3: (laughs) yeah no and i think you do it so beautifully and i love how you do it in a way that is so unique to you and one of the things i mean this is a podcast that primarily is about a podcast network primarily about mindfulness and spiritual you know sort of exploration and ways in which we're sort of you know dealing with our relative world and our our lives here is just, you know, people who have arthritis and people who have, you know, probably like, you know, don't like a rainy day. And, you know, just the basic stuff that we deal with every day, including the big stuff like the pandemic and like racism and things like that. Um, But then like the, this whole bigger piece of like, you know, nature and the cosmos, and aren't we a part of that too? And where do we fit in and all of that? And one of the things that we talk about with mindfulness practices, or or any Buddhist practice, or any kind of practice really, is that it's sort of often both something that's deeply profound and insightful at, at a certain point in time, like a big bang, like at a big aha moment that someone can have, or it can also be that cultivation of like, okay, now we're learning the Mixolydian scales. Now we're learning the, you know, uh, the arpeggios. Now we're learning the, you know, and it's just sort of like, okay we're gradually climbing we're gradually putting one foot in front of the other and that it's a practice and so I see a lot of parallels with uh, musicians like yourself and mindfulness and just sort of spiritual practices uh and and I don't know if that's something that you've ever thought about or if you see yourself as a spiritual person or if your musicianship is it all part of a spiritual life that you have or would you categorize it that way at all or or, or somehow differently?
1: Um... I've never really thought about that, but if I had to really think, it maybe it is a, a tad bit spiritual, you know, some of the music that I may create, that I compose, it definitely has some type of spirit, spirituality in it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I kind of just write from the heart. (laughs) Well,
3: that and that is what I guess I'm saying, is that I think that there's a there's a beautiful piece there, writing from the heart. When you're writing from the heart, are you feeling as though perhaps you're inspired and something is coming through you and moving through you? And then from that, you then put it on the page?
1: Definitely. So the majority of my compositions, again, they come from the heart, but they're at least nowadays. These days I'm writing for people or a particular event or something that has happened, you know, uh, a number of my songs are, uh, are, are based on that. Like for instance, the, the, the tune gang gang. Mm-hmm. The uh, one for
3: the podcast.
1: That's right. So shall I talk about that one?
3: Yeah, please do. I could, I mean, it's a seven minute song. I could play it in the middle of the podcast, but it's a long one.
1: Yeah. Well, it's long for, well, it's long because of solos as well, but the whole, uh, the whole backdrop, the, you know, the background of the story. Um, so my wife, again, like I said, she's a retired classical ballerina. Mm. So we were sitting down, this was, had to be about five years ago. Um, not that we have not seen this movie, but we were watching Coming to America.
3: Yes. Oh, God.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: ah, that was, yeah, that was a classic.
1: That's right. And part two is coming out soon. But, nice. Uh, yeah. So we were watching Coming to America. And, you know, for those who are seen the movie and those who have not seen the movie, uh, Eddie Murphy's character, Akeem, was about to get married. And, you know, right before, well, not not the marriage part, like when he first met us, bride. Anyway, they had this strong like tribal uh, dancing going on, kind of like an African rhythm. hmm. You know, one, two, <laughs> you know, whatever. And my wife, she we were watching that. She said, look at all that gang gang. And I looked at her, I said, what are you talking about? She said, you know, that that style of dancing, we in the classical world, we don't do that. Uh, and I started thinking, I said, okay, let me see, or I'm, I'm gonna come up with a song, like right there was that was already my story. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna come up with a song that merges the two together. So uh when you're hearing the beginning of the song, you hear this strong, like six, eight clave rhythm. <laughs> right in the middle of the song we segue over to this classical sound you know I'm thinking Bach Beethoven and again all of that stuff is just a part of my background so I just put the two uh styles together and the song is basically a composition for my wife so I titled it Gang Gang
3: (laughs) I I so love that I want to hear it now I want to play like half of it and then I want to pause and then I want you to talk a little bit about it and then I'm going to play the other half and then we're going to come back and talk some more how does that sound sounds good All right, let's hold on one second. All right, this is Gang Gang by Warren Wolf.
2: Thank you.
3: right here. All right, now we're picking it up again with the conversation. We're just pausing right there because we're shifting from the gang gang piece to more the classical piece.
2: Yep. Mm -hmm.
3: And tell me what it's like to have trained in this classical world and then be sort of in a pop world in many ways, a jazz pop world.
1: You know, um, growing up, I honestly thought that I was going to be a classical musician. I was like really good at playing classical music. I, I was in this group, I remember at Peabody called the Peabody Symphonia, And they actually gave me one of my first uh, first couple of tours. And I was the, uh, the lead percussion, well, the lead timpanies. I played timpani in, in, in this group. Uh, we, I remember we had a two week tour of, uh, of London and I know we had another two week tour of Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. So my first tours in life were all classical, so I had those two. And then when I was a kid, I, I went on tour with the uh, Baltimore Symphony, with um, playing this piece called the Pop Piper Fantasy with Flawless mm-hmm. James Galway. So my classical upbringing was awesome. I think, um, well, not not that I think the thing that I love about classical music it gives you such a command of your instrument. Um, it teaches you how to uh read really well to play with technique um control facility all of that all the all those good things yeah so everything that I learned from classical music. I just switched it over
3: to jazz. Well, you know what I love about this is as you're speaking and I'm hearing you say that, again, with the context of the way that this podcast is, we're talking about things like mindfulness practices and there's a thing called concentration practice, which is more of a discipline practice where you use something called like very Energy more around the idea of like, no, I'm really just gonna keep sticking with this thing that I need to do because even though it's not like my most fun favorite thing out there, it helps me get to a place of what you just said, which I think you called it, um, I don't know. You said foundational. What was the word that you used? Uh, huh? Ascendant. A facility, like yeah, that there's a foundational f- facility that you get for, a mastery, if you will, if you can and you know work from that classical base and then incorporate the jazz, which is more um, what we might consider something like open awareness practice or something or the or the being in the moment kind of a thing. Because when you're doing your improvisations in those um, jazz uh, you know, songs. I mean, there's, I think that there's something else at work there besides just you, but you needed the mastery to get there.
1: Definitely. You know, one thing my dad said uh, in any skill in life, whatever uh, you choose to do, he's, he always said that you need 15,000 hours for the practice. He added five. Because <laughs> they said 10. 10,000. Oh, it, well, he, he definitely gave me 15,000. <laughs> I love it. Tell me more. So, I started playing at the young age of three. And s- since we're talking about, you know, having that mind, you know, to, to master things, mm-hmm. um, you know, I look at my own children. I'm just like, wow. And, you know, my my daughter is four, my youngest child. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I can't even imagine keeping my daughter in the basement. Uh, I mean, our basement was, was cool, but, you know, I, I couldn't imagine. I can't imagine telling my daughter to come down here in the basement for 90 minutes to hold your concentration, to perform well on three different instruments. Wow! Which is what my father did for me, or to <laughs> me. Either wow! Or two or four of me at the age of three. 30 minutes on mallets, instruments, vibes, marimba. Another thirty minutes on the uh, keyboards, and another thirty minutes on drums. That lasted five days per week until the age, of, well, from the age of three up until seventeen. Wow. Wow. Summer times it doubled because I grew up in a crazy neighborhood and then also Saturdays I was taking lessons at the, at Peabody Preparatory.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: again, 6 days of training from the age of 3 up until 17. That's a lot of hours.
3: That's a lot of hours. I mean, you know, that would be like the equivalent of, you know, you know they picked the Dalai Lama and they they sort of you're the one you know yeah,
2: yeah.
3: And, and 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 i mean there's training there's deep 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 training there right and yeah. and i don't and and you pretty much had your basement was the monastery in a way you know what i mean like when you're when you're with the, a lot of these folks they'll go and study with a with a teacher somewhere um or an abbot or whatnot in in you know India or Tibet or something, and, and, and they'll practice for 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And it sounds like that, you know, was your basement was that and your dad was
1: your teacher. Yeah, it was like our sanctuary.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. And tell me, you just said I had a crazy neighborhood. You know, this is what my dad and I did together. This is what he made me do or did to me or did for me. Which one was it? Did you have a feeling of it being done to you or was it really done for you or with you?
1: Overall, it was done for me. As a young child, I'm thinking, you're doing something to me. Because, um, again, the neighborhood was, was, was crazy. I've, I've seen a lot of stuff coming up and living in the uh, inner city. You know, the inner city.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I didn't realize until I got older, okay, my dad is just trying to keep me on a, a guided path, a path to success. When a lot of my friends that I grew up with, they didn't have that. Mm-hmm. I have two older sisters. They were cool. But, you know, it's just the other people in my neighborhood, they, I mean, don't get me wrong. I went out, I went out and, and hung with those guys too, but my dad gave me a, um, a, a career path. I'm mean, not right. another word, but uh, he gave me a career path at, at an early age. So at a young age, you know, I'm thinking this is like punishment. Why are you keeping me down here every day for 90 minutes to practice? I'd rather be playing with toys outside with my friends all the time. And I did that. But it was just, okay, there's a certain time where we're going to practice. And my dad is very militant because he was a, uh, he is a Vietnam veteran. Mm. So, you know, I had no choice but to do it. But eventually, you know, once you you started doing something, you become good at it. And I, you know, I um, started to really enjoy it. I think around the time when I was 11 or 12, that's when I was like, okay, let's.
3: Let's do it for real. <laughs> yeah, let's do it for real. Um, I, 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 I'm just loving learning more about this because I think there is something to that uh, discipline that is not particularly fun or choiceful but when you kind of get it down to a certain point and you be you have a certain sense of mastery, then like when you were 12 in your case, then the fun can begin because then you can see what all of it was for. Right. Yeah. It's like now I'm flexible. I can do I can be Gumby.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, I'm not a stick figure anymore.
1: Definitely. Oh, just very fun times coming up. You know, uh, once I hit 12 and beyond, you know, um it was just soaking up influence from everybody as much as I can.
3: Like other musicians that you're working with or teaching or uh, are, are teaching with you influence from whom?
1: Um, other, um, other teachers. I mean, my dad was a history teacher. He was not a professional musician. He taught United States and world history in schools. Uh, wow. Playing. But, you know, from him again, classmates, um, just listening to recordings, listening to music, and everything wasn't just based around jazz, you know. Um, just listening to just popular music. Uh, again, w- even with my two older sisters, I used to listen to the things that they would play around the house. Like uh, what? Um, for me, I guess my ear started developing in the '80s. So, I mean, I was born in '79. So early hip hop, uh, like you know, um, Run DMC, uh, mm-hmm. In Vogue. Beastie Boys, all of that stuff from, I remember they used to watch this movie, this hip hop movie called Crush Groove. <laughs> and I used to, you know, I was kind of young because, I mean, I, I love my sisters, but they they exposed me to a lot of stuff at a young age. You know, um, I was like, wait, what, what, what did he just say? Right, <laughs> so, right. But, you know, it, it's cool. I, I knew what was right and what was wrong. But, you know, um, all of that type of stuff. Um, again, I mean, Pretty pretty much all all everything that my sisters and my parents played around the house is what got me going. I
3: I love that. Um, you know, you mentioned your dad was a Vietnam vet, and 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 that you grew up in and you still live in 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 Baltimore area, but that you grew up in a. a I guess uh, what did you did you call it an inner city neighborhood? It was more just
1: just to be frank. I I grew up in the hood.
3: (laughs) You grew up in the hood. Okay, so growing up, I mean, where I'm assuming you're saying I saw a lot of things. I saw, you know, violence, or you know,
1: violence. Yeah, violence. I mean, even though, I mean, nothing compared to today, really. I mean, it's still bad violence. Violence, but I've I've seen um, the reason I I remember we moved from this particular neighborhood. I think we lived there from 1980 up until 91. I'll never forget when I saw um, a dead body across the street from our
2: house.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, stuff like that. Again, my parents didn't explain to me how traumatic that would be. Not that it did anything to me, but that's just an image you you don't forget.
3: right? And how old were you?
1: 10. Wow. Yeah, just to see a lifeless body and then when the police come and when they have to clean the street with the you know with the uh, water the holes. right? And when they, I think the um, uh, the drain was kind of like on the end of our house, so when they're trying to clean the sidewalk and you see blood going, I'm just you know stuff like that. You just don't you know you
3: don't forget, don't
1: forget. it. You never, I never forget that. Um, and then of course they had like like um, neighborhood gangs. Um, all around who would battle from other, you know, neighborhoods, you know, I've, I've seen all of that, every bit of it. And then uh, one of the reasons, I guess, uh, well, not, I guess one of the reasons, again, why I was telling you why my dad decided to keep me on that straight path, because in my family, at least for the, uh, not all, but a good part of the men in my family were up to no good. I love them to death, but they were, <laughs> they were
3: kind of rascals.
1: Yeah, they're not they're not good, you know. I mean they're good, they're good people, but they're just, you know, up to no good. Yeah, they up mm-hmm. to no good. Mm-hmm. My dad he just made sure to keep me away from that.
3: Right, I understand.
1: I grew up in a two-parent home. A lot of the men in my family, at least my cousins at least, they didn't they grew up in a single-parent home and to the point where um their moms couldn't really control them. So you know, I had my mother and my father and my two sisters. Always they were on me because I'm the baby, and they could see, okay, he's going to be something special in school. Yeah, you know, from the principals saying that they were like, "Wow, you know, Warren, he can play." You know, everybody. So they was like, "We're going to make sure you're good." You know, we you're very well protected.
3: Beautiful, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I and I love that because, like you said, you know, as a kid, you would have just played. I don't know jacks or checkers or do whatever kids do all day but that um you you took the discipline as love and um and that you really saw what the alternative could be Mm -hmm. even though it was A shock to the system, and again, I work with uh, trauma—folks who have had trauma, vicarious trauma, people who are traumatized, racialized trauma. Obviously, all of that, physical, emotional. And I'm wondering what were your reflections this summer about the uprising and the way in which that you know the pandemic coincided with everything with Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and how that's just highlighting what has been obviously the core wound i think of this country um since its quote-unquote founding um which of course is its own story in terms of indigenous genocide
1: um i think the whole thing is troubling i think the country country really needs to come together i mean Baltimore, we were right in the middle of a um racial uprising I would say like maybe four years ago when we had the uh the murder of um Freddie Gray right and that happened here in Baltimore and I watched not it wasn't the entire city a lot of people thought it was the entire city It was a couple of a few blocks in like the, the most inner in uh African-American neighborhood in Baltimore where you know looting stores on fire and things like that people were battling the police um I think all of it is pretty sad. I think it's um, unfortunate that a lot of uh, African-Americans are, are, they, I think, I don't, I I don't, I can't necessarily say, I mean, my honest feelings, I I can't say we're being targeted because I know this stuff can happen to anybody, but I know it's been happening to a lot of African-Americans and that's kind of troubling. A lot Mm -hmm. of people say, um, you know, it's because of uh, Trump, you know, that people feel that they can come out and, and just be who they really are. You know, they just could—they could never be. You know, come out. But they said well, actually the correct thing. Trump has made it um, made it okay to show your to to show that you're racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, to be honest, I got to be totally honest with you. I really don't get into a lot of conversations about this too much. At least whatever. Yeah. But you know, because a lot of friends, they they be like, well, this and that, and I'm just like, listen, I don't want to hear. It. <laughs> but it's it's, it's kind of sad you know up until recently you know just like um the thing that's just happened over a few days ago uh, uh my, my friend keon harold
2: yeah. have
1: you heard about that yeah no oh yeah so this this is when viral keon is a wonderful trumpeter uh
3: <gasps> yes oh with the phone
1: yes he's yeah. a really mini people i mean he's very well- i mean his son's phone yeah He's very well liked in the, in the jazz community, but he's been out with many people from, I mean, in jazz, Robert Glasper, uh, Common, the hip hop artist, Esperanza Spalding, you know, many people. And, you know, now this has happened with his son.
3: Just for those listeners and viewers who haven't been familiar with it, Tian Harold was in a uh, hotel that apparently a woman was um, not checked in at but had stayed at from what I understand uh and was convinced that uh his son's phone was her phone uh Mm -hmm. but it was that the security guard or the manager at the hotel was aligning with her in terms of her affirmation that it was her phone that his son was holding which was his phone and it just sort of showed what it means to sort of have and mind you, this is a racial context, right? She's
1: white, he's black. Um, he's only 14 at the, at at that too. I'm sorry. The son is only 14 years old as well. Yeah. He's a kid. Yeah.
3: He's a kid. And she stole She grabbed him and tackled him and took the phone Mm -hmm. and that the uh, person who is at the uh, hotel, um, seem to in the video, and you can see the video on Instagram, um, you know, to not be listening to anything that your friend had to say about it. And that's really troubling. um, Because what it points to is what we've sort of tried to talk about in this podcast and in other, you know, trainings that I've done, which is the more implicit biases and the ways in which, you know, we get locked up and caught up in the way that systemic oppression over time uh, plays out in these what some might call microaggressions, others might call macroaggressions, mm-hmm. um, but nonetheless, uh, violations of your, own, of your own space, your yeah. own dignity.
1: Yeah: It's quite sad. I mean, a lot of this stuff happens. I mean, my my um, oldest son, who was 17, after talking with his mother in Boston, you know he was racially profiled at a, at a skating rink. He's one of the better skaters. Like this, this boy can skate his butt off, mm-hmm. <laughs> With tricks and everything. But the the manager of the uh, skating rink refused to let him in because he's kind of better than everybody. So she banned him from the skating rink. I'm just like, what was that about? You know?
3: So, wow, yeah. wow! And this is the lived experience. And meanwhile, I mean, you're here as this amazing composer, and you're here as this, and and so is he, right? And you know, and and that. In those kinds of situations, the underlying reaction or the underlying has nothing to do with you as a human, as an individual, as a person. It has to do with uh, a racial profiling, which is about some blanket idea that someone may have about what a stereotype, a profile or whatever. That has nothing to do uh, with anything about curiosity, about, you know, an invitation of well, who is this person? You know, what, what's happening here? Uh, and everything to do with assumption, which is the whole point that mindfulness tries to teach is, can we drop our assumptions and can we get curious? And can yeah. we just be in the moment and just like meet you where you're at?
1: Mm-hmm. Indeed.
3: You want to listen to the rest of Gang Gang?
1: Sure. <laughs> All right, hold
3: on. We're going to do the classical part now. And we're going to play out Gang Gang. what was happening there we had the classical interlude
1: yep so right when I uh we stopped right there that was the beginning of the solo section um but there was that one section that we heard it was just um really lush and in classical you heard a lot of um motifs from for, if you listen from the piano you don't really hear a lot of jazz improvised improvisation that's going on between myself or the saxophones who is uh steve wilson on this recording
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, when i was in the studio with the guys i just asked him um why the piano player had a specific part that he had to play uh as far as myself and steve i asked him i said just play um uh, counterpoint with me which is you know just basic interplay between us uh carl allen the drummer i asked him to just uh play a lot of cymbals and sounds and splashes and Christian McBride on base the leader of the session uh he he's just kind of pulsing on one particular note
2: mm-hmm
3: all right you want to keep it going
1: uh yeah sure
3: all right <laughs> i couldn't help myself (laughs) i just could not uh i mean that's some good stuff right there uh and you know you have to work out to get those wrists and hands and arms so strong don't you to make it so gentle and elegant
1: yeah you do and i I do quite a bit of that
3: I mean, it's a discipline. I guess what I'm trying to really get across here is that all that joy and beauty comes through and out of your practice, your discipline practice and your attention to detail. It doesn't just come from nowhere so that, you know, I play tennis. I used to try to play fake book jazz on the piano, but I kind of wasn't as good (laughs) as you were with that. But I I mean, and, and nor am I. Really, that great on the tennis court, but we watch. I watch Roger Federer, and I love watching him play. And there was a New York Times article written about him maybe five or ten years ago that said he's like a ballerina. To your wife's point, on the tennis court, because he's so fluid and effortless. And to listen to you, it's like it's like syrup. You know, it's like sweet and it's like light and it's like airy, and um it that just doesn't come from nowhere.
1: It uh, for me, it it all again is rooted in that classical tradition. Uh, I I just try to flow. I try to play like a, there's a combination of a violin player or a flautist mixed in with Charlie Parker.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: I think Charlie Parker is one of the greatest uh, masters ever on this horn. But then again, I just try to take what he's done and mix it with everything else. My thing is all about mixing. There's a time and place for everything. You know, um, if if we want to play pop music, if we want to play classical, if you want to play something that's crazy out of this world, if you want to play something that's traditional jazz, or if we need a, a song that just shows a show that has a showcase of all all or well, multiple styles combined, you know, I just try to mix everything and just try to play the right note. My thing, um, what I like to describe myself as, I'm I'm actually like I like to look at myself now as a as a musical healer,
3: Mm, a musical healer. I love that.
1: Musical healer, definition of a musical healer. So we have many people who are, who go to work, they work a regular nine to five job. And then when they come home, they want to release from the day, stressful, non-stressful, whatever. They just want to take their their mind off of what happened during the day. So they want to come and hear some music. Our jobs as musicians are to entertain them, take their minds away from that.
2: Mm.
1: Me personally, I'm, my message to anybody who comes to see my show or purchase any of my music is for you to, to get a sense of relief and comfort from hearing what I have to say to you. Beautiful. And I again, I look at myself, I'm, yes, I know I'm a musician, but I'm more of a healer. I just want to make people feel good. You know, it's funny, some of my, rec- the record company, whenever I come up with a new record, They always ask that question. So what's the concept? I was like, "Um, make people feel good. Yeah, I (laughs) I
3: love that. It's
1: it's going to have a slight, okay, it's based on this. But at the same time, every song is built to make you feel good.
3: (laughs) And you do do that. And it's so interesting to hear you call yourself that because that's what I feel on the other side of it. It's not, I, I can't not feel joyful when I'm hearing you play or watching you play or even speaking with you now. And so that idea of healing, that idea of offering that, that idea of, again, it's a mindfulness principle of generosity is a really, um, that you have a generous spirit and a generous heart. And you said the music comes from the heart and comes through you, but comes through all your practice. And so I think I just want to like highlight that before we get to the live version of the song that you wrote for your mom that I want you to introduce to before we kind of close out our, our time together today, which is just that You know, these principles of spiritual principles or mindfulness principles or Buddhist principles or any principles rooted in ethics and discipline, because it's not just about mindfulness. It's about the integration of if we can establish a baseline of, you know, what you call the um, I keep losing the word from the classical that? Basically, the mastery that you get from just being able to do what you need to do and learn what you need to learn from the classical music, the concentration that you get from that enables you to then be in a place where you can be more improv- improvisational and free and then be more generous. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, it's the same quality that we find in a lot of, at least I found, in a lot of really deep spiritual teachers, where in their presence, you just feel space.
2: Yeah.
3: You just feel cared for loved, unjudged, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that there's room for allowing. And I think that the way in which you've cultivated um, all of your your musicality and your discipline, it makes space for that and mm-hmm. does really um, have these beautiful, generous offerings for others. So I just want to say thank
1: you. Oh, no, thank you very much. I appreciate that.
3: Yeah, no, it's it's I love that a musical healer, because there are healers in every in every form. And I would invite any of our listeners or viewers to just see if we can view our lives as art, as living art, view our our, our lives in the way that we treat others as a discipline um, and as a generosity of spirit and, and generosity of heart. So you have your song that you wrote for your mother. So um, maybe we'll, we'll close out on that and you're going to play it for us live.
1: Yeah. So uh, just a quick introduction. The, the name of this tune is called simply for my this is off of my uh record uh reincarnation that came out in January of this year and um I lost my mother about 4 years ago uh and she re- she retired early from her job mm. and she uh she was trying to figure out like well now I'm retired what am I going to do so my dad figured he like well let me just start giving her keyboard lessons which is something that she always wanted so for about two, two or three years, right up until our death, um, they would sit at my dad's studio and just play all of these songs, like from the Motown era. Mm.
2: Um,
1: and she would play them on piano, not the melody, but she would just play like the chords. And uh-huh. she got, my mom got really good um, playing piano with honestly within two years. I mean, far better than what I did. I mean, I can honestly say that. That's amazing. Um, so when she passed. Um, I remember I wrote this song that same week because that same week I had a show at Jazz at Lincoln Center and my band members, they said, Warren, are you going to still make the show? And I, I thought about it and I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. You know, my mom would want me to do it. So I remember that same night when she passed away, I sat at the keyboard and I was just sitting down crying and I was playing piano and this melody came up and I just kind of sat up and I wiped the tears. I said, wow, this sounds kind of cool. Something upbeat instead of instead of writing something all sad and gloomy i'm going to write something that she liked to do so this song again for my it's it's, it's kind of uh like you'll hear like a a tambourine going uh it brings back that whole motown feel It's, mm-hmm. just, it's the tribute of something that she likes something that's very upbeat uh very happy and uh yeah, she would love. She would definitely love it. I could see her now. She'd be like, boy, this sounds great. <laughs> exactly how she would talk to me if she heard it. So,
2: <laughs>
3: Well, I, I love that. So let's dedicate this for Ma to her and to everyone who's lost anyone really in 2020. It's been a challenging year for everyone and to the honor and the spirit of your mom, the joyful Motown uh, spirit. This is Mr. Warren Wolf. You can find out much more about him, his beautiful story, uh, his beautiful music at his website, Warren Wolf wolfmusic.com and again my most sincere gratitude on behalf of myself and and the Be Here Now uh, group uh, for graciously allowing us to use Gang Gang as the music for Rerooted because uh, it is much loved so I'll let you get set up for that thank you so much Warren
2: thank you (laughs)
3: Mr. Warren Wolf, everybody on the vibes with Hey Ma. And thank you for that performance. We love it.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh,
3: <laughs> it's amazing. Thank you for joining us on Rerooted and we will check you out. WarrenWolf.com, everybody. Happy 2021. Thank
1: you so much, I appreciate it.
3: All right, bye now.